Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Missing Maura Murray podcast. I'm Tim here tonight with Lance. Lance, how are you? Excellent. Thank you. How are you? I'm well. So episode four, we're talking about that tonight. Episode four of Oxygen's series, The Disappearance of Maura Murray, aired last Saturday. And we recorded a Facebook Live session on our Facebook page that we will be doing again this Saturday night at... Uh, 8 p.m. Eastern. So check that out on our Facebook page. Um, but this is audio from our Facebook Live session. And so we're going to play that for the majority of this episode again, like we've been doing the past few weeks. And these Facebook Live after shows have been building some some steam here. They've been building some momentum. Uh, we got some really good questions, some really excellent uh, observations and feedback Uh the next episode is going to be crazy, and I mean, we all know that it's going to be crazy, and those people that came out for the Facebook Live last week, come back out this week, you're going to have a lot more questions, and 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 we appreciate that, and it, it really does generate a lot of uh, renewed interest, and maybe some stuff that, that's been forgotten about in, in the past. We had some um, contributors who brought up uh, points to us that that we hadn't thought about in a while. And I think this next episode is going to explore uh, one of those theories, one of, one of, one of the, one of the major theories out there. And, and it's a very sometimes convoluted topic. So anything that people can come with, that's going to help clear up, clear it up. It would be much appreciated. And thank you very much for taking the uh, half hour or so after the show to contribute to it. So this past episode dealt with the idea or the possibility of a police conspiracy. I would say most of the episode kind of dealt with that. We heard from Officer Cecil Smith, who was the first responder that night, and he admitted to, to driving SUV 001, the, the SUV, the police vehicle that everyone thought Chief Jeff Williams was driving Turns out it was Cecil Smith who was driving that SUV. Pretty kind of ground-shaking information, right, Lance? Absolutely ground-shaking. And 
when you're when you're when you're about to uh, as you're listening to him speak and you're hearing the information about the police conspiracy and Jeff Williams and Smith and what happened during the phone calls and and what um, Faith Westman saw and what was reported. One thing maybe to consider, and I didn't consider it until after, is that this isn't supposed to, this isn't really debunking anything. It's it's a statement sort of of facts. And then there's a timeline that goes to those facts. And, and it really presents a solid explanation of some, of some time that happened during point A to, to the accident. And take it in don't 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 look for things to debunk take it in and and process it and that that's what we've been doing for the past you know week since the show is is processing this and saying you know that this wasn't so much debunked as just explained and that's important right so karen mcnamara witness a she was right about what she saw she saw an suv 001 pass her twice um, so that that is it must be some vindication for Karen herself and for other people who you know really follow this case and and swore that they didn't think Karen was lying and of course we said it we said it from the very beginning when we talked to Karen she did not come off like someone who was lying she come off came off very credible and it is nice to see that she was proven completely accurate on what she saw that night. So what you're left with after that is the human element. No one no one knows what's happening right then and there. Karen doesn't know what's happening right then and there, and the people who called the the police and 911, they don't know what it is about to become 13 and a half years later. So Karen doesn't look at that 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 scene on the side of the road and pull over and write down in a notebook it's now seven whatever you know seven thirty one she doesn't do that because it just looks like a car off the side of the road so again yeah you're going to look at this and you're going to say well this is this is totally explainable we can get as much information as possible from this but at some point there's a human element that comes into play maggie and art also spoke with new hampshire senior assistant attorney general jeffrey strelzen that was pretty cool to see him talk, and I think in the episode it kind of said that we never heard back from him, and that was maybe a little bit of creative editing because we did hear back from him. We did have some emails with him. Yeah, he was very gracious in the uh, in the questions that we submitted to him, and you can go back to episode 27 where we talk about the, the answers that he gave and the non-answers that he gave to our questions. Which is, it was great to see him on camera and on TV because the style in which the questions that we presented to him were answered was sort of how I pictured his speech pattern to be. And it was really something interesting to see Strelzen on camera. And because I feel like the his presence in that room, they had a really good chemistry, first of all. When when they were all in the room and they were talking to him and the way he was answering the questions, he, he seemed a, a little bit like an anti-hero to me. And, and I like that um, because he's not supposed to be like that in real life. The His position in law enforcement is not supposed to be accommodating and and forthcoming with people who aren't part of a law, like directly involved in an investigation. You know, these aren't people within his unit coming to him. These are this is a television crew and and an investigative journalist and, and he's giving as much as he possibly can. And the fact that he sat in with uh Smith during that interview, some people might might it does seem like that's a little bit perhaps fishy. Yep. But it it would have been even more fishy if someone in his position did not sit in on that interview where the first responding officer was about to give his first interview. Yeah, we talked about this, and we talk about it a little bit in the uh, Facebook Live audio that that's coming up. But um, I think what we kind of came to is it might be for their own safety, like for um, the state of New Hampshire's safety and these officers' safety, because as we just explained about some of the creative editing that they edited around us saying that we never heard back from uh, the attorney general, which you know I was there, I, I didn't say that. I said. Um, other than e- some email correspondence, we never heard back from anyone. And so they only use, we never heard back from anyone. So obviously Strelzin is aware that documentaries can do this. 
Um, and it's not illegal. It's con- perfectly fine contractually, all that. Um, in no way is the show fake, but they needed to cover their own bases, I think, cover their own asses. Because if there was something in there, like, you know, it, it's like a question from Maggie, what do you think happened that night? And Cecil Smith says, Jeff Williams, <laughs> you know, and then the cut, go to commercial. And maybe that was just part of the regular conversation where uh, where they say, oh, who, who do people think was supposed to be driving the SUV? And then Cecil Smith answers Jeff Williams. Well, Attorney General Jeff Strelzen kind of needs to cover his own ass with that, doesn't he? He needs to know exactly what was stated in the room. Yeah, there's a ton of information as a part of an open investigation. And he's not going to let it go out there anyway, let alone with cameras there on a nationally broadcast TV show. He's not going to just say, oh, you want to talk to, 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 to Smith? You want to talk to Cecil Smith? Yeah, no, go ahead. Like, I don't need to, I don't need to look at this. That's fine. Go ahead, guys. Go ahead, production team. <laughs> Doesn't, he, he would, he should be fired if he did that. <laughs> right. So if he did not sit in on that. Right. So on the surface, it does seem shady and it does. And Maggie even says it. She's like, this is why people um, don't trust the police up here. And it's a great point and it makes sense. But I think what we described here, kind of looking at it from their perspective a little bit, is where the truth lies on, in this situation. And before we play the Facebook Live audio, I just want to throw it to a clip from John Smith speaking with us and with a few other people as a part of the CrimeCon Cold Case Club. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's pretty cool. Check out club.crimecon.com and you can get involved with the Cold Case Club. And it's pretty interesting what they're doing. So basically last Sunday there was a radio show or sort of a podcast, I guess you want to say. Bobby Chacon was on, who was a former FBI, so that was pretty cool talking to him a little bit. Uh, so check that out. And I think we're going to be on not this Sunday, but the following Sunday after episode six airs. We'll be on there with Maggie and Art. So check that out at club.crimecon.com. Yeah, this clip of John, he, he does uh, – you, you need to follow it. You need to follow it. He, he paints a pretty um, – he, he paints a pretty detailed picture of of what happens uh who talks to who and and police work so follow it it's uh it it really is sort of like the um it's like the crux of the of the whole case like figuring out these things with police dispatch and and rolling up on the scene and etc etc so super interesting on february 9th of course more goes missing and then karen hears the report um a couple days later she calls in to tell the police in haverhill what she had seen or what she says not seen because there was really not much there. Um, And she told them that and told them that she had seen the uh, black and white number 001 SUV packed nose to nose with um, a black sedan. Um, And that was all she saw. She didn't see any people or anything. And about two days later, someone from um, the police department, who she believed to be from the police department, called her back and said to her, um, are you sure that it was the SUV 001 that you saw? And she said, yes, I know it was the SUV 001 because when I come around the corner, I saw it was an SUV black and white and it had 001 in the back. And I remember questioning, well, this is, that's, this is years later, but anyway, um, that was all that basically happened from there. And then about she had given this information in email to the family uh, and about a year or so later, when the uh, state police were investigating again, she again called the New Hampshire State Police to tell them what she had seen that night to make sure that they had the information. And in doing so, she was told by someone from the state police that it's not possible for you to have seen the SUV 001 that evening because it was out of commission. Now, she was also contacted by John Healy from the New Hampshire League of Investigators who told her that it was not possible for her to see that because it was out of commission. So that is two instances where she was told that that vehicle was out of commission. So her story, again, has not changed in 13 and a half years. Now, if indeed she did leave either a little bit early or a little bit late, still puts her in that area 
long before the 7.46 time of when Cecil Smith was signing off. Now, if he did not sign off at 7.46 or, or at 7.40, which he says he got there possibly, how can we trust exactly what time he got there as by, by the FBI agent's statement um, as just because of that's what he said? I, you know, it could have been two minutes. It could have been 10 minutes. It could have been 12 minutes. Because when you pull up to a scene and all of a sudden you start doing things, minutes start adding up like hours sometimes. So first of all, he says, uh, he says he immediately went to one of the houses. Well, no. The first thing he did was he went to the vehicle and he went around the vehicle. So how come he had not signed off for that six to eight minutes by the time he should have? I mean, when you're pulling up, when you're rolling up on the scene, you go, you know, H2, PO42 off at the scene. It's as simple as that. So uh, there's a lot of stuff that surrounds that little time frame right there that um, now kind of has, with, with Cecil Smith's response, has cut this down to approximately four to five minutes. Okay, so before we play this Facebook audio, just wanted to remind you to check out our other podcast called Crawl Space. Check us out on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Crawl Space Pod. Lance, what are we talking about over on Crawl Space? I think the real question is what aren't we talking about? Because we've de- we've developed Crawl Space where the main focus of the the podcast itself is to look into in depth a few different cases. The main ones that we're looking into on Crawl Space, the parent podcast, is the Vanishing Men of Boston, the Dean murder from a hundred years ago in New England, a small New England town, and the Brianna Maitland case. Branching off of that, we have the Cellar Series and Vault. Cellar Series is where we discuss topics of criminal psychology and maybe authors who deal with that or professors, other podcasters in the same genre. And the vault is more like, what do we want to talk about that can get our mind off of this that's fun? That when we get together, we talk about these topics like ghosts. Oh, man, that was so fun talking about ghosts uh, last week on Crawl Space. Check that one out. It's a, it's a, it's a Halloween special. Um, it's not something that we get into often, paranormal topics, but it was it's around Halloween, and, and I have a personal story, and it was just a fun conversation. And when we were having that conversation, I remember looking at the clock and thinking, uh, this is definitely... This is definitely going to need to be pared down a little bit because we could really go on and on about it. And the story that you have, your personal story, um, every time I think of that story now, I get the song Ring My Bell in my head, which <laughs> sucks. So I'm actually a little upset <laughs> that we me. had to talk about that. Okay. Well, all right. So let's throw it to this Facebook Live audio. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. We will be back Saturday night at 8 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook channel. Link is in the show notes. We will be doing a Facebook Live show. Um, And obviously, check out Oxygen's Episode 5, The Disappearance of Maura Murray, 7, 6 Central on Oxygen. And it replays again at 9, 8 Central. Trust me, Episode 5 is Fucking crazy. What do you think about episode four? A whole new direction, right? I mean, we we knew at some point that they were going to uh, breach the topic of police conspiracy uh, to see Smith. And to see uh, Strelzen, to see uh, those those two come together in the uh, uh, state police barracks, to see that interview happen was um, was amazing, right? That's something that we've wanted to see for quite a while. Right. So you're referring to the end of the episode where Officer Cecil Smith, who was the first on the scene, supposedly going by the police logs that night, February 9th, Cecil Smith was first on the scene. And we see also uh, Jeffrey Strelzen, but John Monahan, who's right. been long talked about as the sort of mystery law enforcement that was found on the scene, or not found on the scene, but was he on the scene? Was he not on the scene? 
apparently yeah. on the scene in an unofficial way. Right. And a lot can be made for his particip- a lot can be made for his participation that night. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will look at that and say he didn't do his job, but again, we always come back to well, what was the job at the time? Trying to find somebody who was possibly possibly drunk and just abandoning a car. And and when we were watching it, uh, the question that Art had asked about you didn't knock on on doors, you didn't you know you didn't uh, you didn't go like door to door. That really wasn't his jurisdiction to do that. Or it wasn't not, John not, Monahan's jurisdiction? Yeah, not jurisdiction. jurisdiction. I want to say it wasn't uh, it wasn't his duty to do that. He was assisting because he was there. Um, like a general assistance, I think they called it. Uh, that that's more about the local police. And honestly, how many doors are there in the area to knock on? There had already been knocked on. What did strike me was that Butch Atwood was sent out to look, or volunteered, or yeah, or, that or was instructed to go look. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's. Um, we're getting to the end of the episode already, but that's okay. Right. Let's sorry. Just, no, that's fine. Let's just go straight there. So Cecil Smith says that he, or I'm sorry, John Monahan says that Cecil Smith said I sent Butch to go search, or I maybe not I sent, but. That's what he did. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, he sent Butch to go search west. So he searched towards the Mountain View uh, Lakes area, Mountain Lakes area, um, where we had the vigil in 2015 or 2016. Right, exactly. So about a mile west. So that's interesting that Butch went out there. What did, what did you make of that, that Butch went out there? I don't know how small town police uh investigations work or police response works because it wasn't really an investigation at that point right right? so i i do think it's weird but maybe it's common to send a witness to the he was a he was a witness to the accident it it is it is a little strange in my head but maybe it's just revisionist history he must have just trusted him right away for whatever reason um, he he specified that I I didn't know Butch before, right? Exactly, which is pretty interesting that he bought that he bothered to volunteer that information when no one asked him that. Obviously, Maggie pointed that out as well, right? That that was pretty interesting. And yeah, Jason Watts says the plot certainly thickened. Yeah, it has. Um, so Cecil Smith was driving zero zero one, according to what we just saw. He was dri- He says he was driving zero zero one. There's some. The SUV. The yeah. SUV, 001. There's, there's some question as to whether – what he's referred to in the dispatch log. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether, so, whether eight, well, hold on. Let me yeah. zoom out real quick. Sorry. So, <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, witness A, Karen, believes that she saw 001, SUV 001. And there's only one SUV in the whole town, uh, as John Smith says uh, in the episode. And so, witness A saw this – SUV passer twice on the road. And so what we found out tonight was Cecil Smith, who was first on the scene said, actually that was me in the SUV. Um, I don't know who, you know, who you thought it was. Obviously who everyone thought it was, was Jeffrey Williams uh, who comes up as well, um, but was not spoken to in this episode. Right. Because people think, because the perception is that the chief of police drives zero zero one. Right. And zero zero one was the SUV, and then you look into all of all of that and what John Smith has said about, and not just John Smith. What is what has been said about Jeff Williams? Mm-hmm. It it does cause a bit of suspicion. If anybody we we have we have witness A's interview on one of our episodes. Off the top of my head, I can't remember what number that episode is. Yeah, we'll find out. Um, and that was uh, with Alex and witness A and. They he arranged the interview. He he performed the interview, which was awesome. And episode thirty, episode thirty, uh, and and Alex speaks with witness A Karen. And if you want to get a more extended version of that, I would I would check that out um, because she she does go into a, a lot of the same things, but then a lot of a lot of details that just aren't in this episode. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions, but the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases 
from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans-Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street. Accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back. Not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened to O.J. Simpson. And look what happened to Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Okay, so Alex, actually, speaking speaking of Alex, he mentions here in the chat, he says that he doesn't trust some of Cecil Smith's answers and right. had a feeling we were going to get this response. Um, so he says, I've always been under the impression that the Westman said Smith arrived in the sedan. And when asked about the 001 scenario, they said they never saw an SUV at the scene. So that would be quite interesting. I don't know that off the top of my head. I can't point to where they said that there was never an SUV on the scene. So if you have that, please send that to us. That would be fascinating to see. Um, he also says Smith said Atwood described Mora leaning on the on the car appearing drunk. Right, which is awesome. Sorry to interrupt, but that's awesome because there have been conflicting reports about what Butch has said. Was she in the car? Was she out of the car? And according to what we just saw tonight, it was the presumption that she might have been a little tipsy and needing to hold on to something, which means she was standing outside of her car. Um, if it was Smith in SUV 001, why did police sound so confounded by its presence there that night when returning Karen's call? That is a really good question. So they returned Karen's call and said, are you sure you saw the SUV there that night or SUV 001 that night? Um, so that was one that that is is pretty interesting. What'd you make of that? Well, looking back over the police logs yep. and the dispatch records that we have, certain numbers are assigned to certain officers. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand here, it's it ID P zero four two Smith, and H two is apparently the car that he was driving. However, you can connect H two to a sedan or uh, the SUV is really what we need to come down to. Is is H2 what he was driving, and is H2 an SUV, or is it a sedan? So I I was looking at what Alex was, was writing right there, and 
always been under the impression, like you you had asked him, always been under the impression that the Westmans said Smith arrived in the sedan. Mm-hmm. And when asked about 001, they said they never saw any SUV at the scene. I've been looking through the police dispatch. I can't find it here. So if there's any documentation, any... Um, what do you see in the police reports? I see that, that Smith was dispatched and they ID him. It says ID P042 Smith. Shows when he was dispatched, when he was en route, when he arrived, and when he cleared. Um, and and the narrative H2 is, I'm under the assumption that H2 is a vehicle that he was driving. Okay, so it's not, H2 isn't assigned to the person, and... It's it's not assigned to the person. H2, H2 is the vehicle. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so that's conflicting with the police reports you're saying. What they said to Maggie and Art. I don't know because <laughs> okay. I could be reading that. I could okay. be reading this wrong. Alex goes on to say his last point here. If Smith didn't know Atwood at all, why enlist him to help search for Mora? Great question. I don't know. Maybe it's just small town trust. Yeah. It, it seemed like he trusted him. I mean, just yeah. you, you could picture that scenario. Uh, I feel like based on what we heard tonight that it's like, Oh, Hey, you want to go look? Or maybe he's just like, Oh, I, I'll go look. Yeah. And, and Atwood has said in, um, in the, uh, <clears throat> I think it's a Caledonian record. He's anyway. His reports uh, has said that he took a ride around the back roads. He was gone for about fifteen minutes. Then he took a ride to French Pond, and French Pond is out by the Swift uh, Water store. Mm-hmm. Um, so he that apparently he was directed to go right in the direction of French Pond. Okay, and he was gone for about fifteen minutes. Interesting. So if if what he said here. Uh, in the uh, in the newspapers is accurate, and this is this is from uh, Gary Lindsay, uh, area Lindsley. Lin- oh, sorry, Gary Lindsley, uh, and this was the, the this was written in uh, I believe it was right after this might have been like June or something yeah. of, of two thousand four. It's pretty it, it's pretty close to when the the actual occurrence like took place. Um, and if what he's saying here is what we just heard tonight, then he was directed to go take a ride around the back roads, gone about 15 minutes, and then took a ride to French Pond. Mm-hmm. Maria here says, Witness A said she didn't see any people. Is that weird? And that's a good question. Right. It is so, weird. So Witness A drives by, and theoretically there should be two people there. Or at least and a it, police officer standing outside of a car. Right. So Mora must have already left if that's really what she saw. You know, no, no one there. And, and her eyes didn't deceive her, um, then Moore had already left and Cecil was talking with a neighbor, I guess, or searching or something. Let me drop a little bit more on you here with Uh-oh. the timeline. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Atwood says he was gone for about 15 minutes. So we can put 15 minutes at, uh, let's back it up a little bit, when he was when he was uh, instructed to go search. That was after the 743 call, right? And he gets back in his bus, and that's when he says that the officer knocked on his bus, and that's when the conversation happened. Mm-hmm. So let's put that at, like, if it's 743, let's put it at 746, okay. 747. And then yeah. he said he was gone 15 minutes, took a ride to French Pond. So a little past eight. Right. And when he says he he drove a mile down the road to the store in Swiftwater to check and see if she was there. She wasn't. When he returned to the accident scene, a New Hampshire State Police trooper was there. So okay. this is this is Moynihan. Okay. Yep. Right. That's Moynihan. Yep. So what would that? Uh, what 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 time would that put us at? If you, I was gone a for about fifteen minutes and I took a eight. ride. A little past eight. Yep. Okay. I just want to like at this article right here sets a pretty pretty uh, like semi-concrete timeline okay little past eight that's when that's when the uh, state trooper was there okay at the accident scene he says wow yeah it's a lot it's a lot of information to dissect here i got all these uh things i wrote down uh and i haven't checked off any of them yet right (laughs) (laughs) so i like that monahan searched butson's which Mm -hmm. was shaw's i believe at the time or it's shaw's now and it was butson's then so John Monahan said that he he pulled the tapes from Butson's and said there was nothing there. So it wasn't so, Mora. So it wrap that one up. Yeah, wrap that one up. Yeah. That, that sighting wasn't Mora. Yep. Um, he could have been a little more thorough with his answer and and been like, oh yeah, I saw who 
the sighting was about and it wasn't Mora, but I think we can take that for it wasn't Mora. And I like what uh, Alex is saying here uh, with the black box. There have been seven unsuccessful attempts to restart the car. That alone speaks volumes. It really does. That means that that wasn't where she wanted to leave the car. Right. Also, the Marats saw uh, reverse lights. Mm -hmm. That means she's tried to get her car out. She's trying to back it up. Yep. Um, And we have Fred saying, you know, whether the um, advice he gave her was, was good or bad, right or wrong... He he said 100%, I told her, if your car is sputtering and smoking, put the rag in the tailpipe. That might get you by. Yeah. Uh, probably won't, but it might. And she probably had that in her head. If I put the rag in the tailpipe, I can get out of this. I can get mm-hmm. out of this area. And it proved to be uh, not successful. So I do like that, uh, that, that the rag in the tailpipe, that big mystery, that big red herring is, yep. is probably wrapped up right now. Chloe says, Art said in his interview with Nancy Grace, which is a great interview, you should really check that one out, that uh, Cecil said that he could have arrived to the site as soon as 7.40 before he called it in. So, what do you have, uh, Lance, I ask you, what do you have in these police records right here in front of you that's always, that's like attached to your hip? Uh, Cecil Smith, according to the dispatch logs, was dispatched at 7.29, was en route within the same minute. And arrived at 7.46. So Cecil arrived at 7.46. Yep. According to the dispatch log. Okay. Cecil arrived at 7.46. Okay. Um, one thing that uh, that was brought up was, did she or did she not walk into the woods? It didn't, I mean, it doesn't seem like it. They, they searched the immediate area that night, at least for footprints. But according to Strelzen, mm-hmm. did she or did she not walk into the woods? According to Strelzen, he said you can't confirm you can't confirm or say it didn't happen. Right. And then it's well, she got out of her car and she could have been hiding behind a tree. Well, you can't really say that if there were no footprints in the woods. Hmm. No one looked that night, but wouldn't there be some sort of disruption behind a tree? Wouldn't there be something? Or some footprints to get to that tree. Yeah. I mean she's hiding behind a tree. She's not standing in the same spot the whole time. Yeah. And right. then, so and you're then she, if she could. She did that, yeah. right? And then just, uh, I do appreciate what he did. I do appreciate the information that he provided, and the questions that he answered with us as well. Mm-hmm. But when uh, when asked about what do you think happened, he doesn't answer anything. And maybe that's just because it's like the open case. Like he can't answer anything. But mm-hmm. he is a like Maggie said. He. He just has non-answers. It's a non that, it's that a, one. <laughs> that one's a non-answer like we give. That is, yeah, that's not, yeah. <laughs> it really is. It's like, well, I don't know. I mean, is the responsible answer? He, he's not going to say, "Oh, I think she was murdered," or "I think she committed right. suicide." He's going to keep them all open because they have to be open to him because he's, you know, prosecuting the case and he's investigating it still. Right, right, right. And uh, Jeffrey here says, "Have to remember, they weren't thinking anything was wrong. Most likely, it was just a cursory scan of the area." That's true. That's what he said. Right, exactly. But then he says. But then he kind of contradicts himself and, you know, well, we have the we have the area that doesn't have footprints going out there. And Mm -hmm. then he says, well, she was she could have been 20 feet away behind a tree. Yeah. I just think it's an irresponsible thing to say when you when when we already know that there was nothing going into the woods in the first place. And, yeah, it definitely was just a cursory scan of the area. They didn't they thought it was somebody ditching a car. Right. Sierra Hare says that uh, it's weird that Cecil immediately volunteered why he would be driving the SUV. Seems contrived. And I kind of see what she's saying. Uh, It seems like Cecil was obviously expecting the question. So I guess his answer probably would have been contrived, even if he's telling the truth. Yeah. And a lot of people were saying that he seemed nervous. Yeah. I mean, you have to you have to also account for the fact that there were cameras and a crew there yeah. and he'd never done an interview before. So he probably was a little this bit nervous. This is the first time he had ever spoken, Lance. Ever. Ever <laughs> spoken publicly. Yeah. Um. Um, <laughs> Melissa says, would they have even checked down that way, down uh, past Bradley Hill Road? Um. And it, Monaghan would have come from that direction. So if Mora took off running east, Monaghan should have seen her unless she did jump into the woods and hide from the car, the, the cop car coming down the road. 
Um, which is a possibility because if she had jumped into the the woods, say, or off the road, then they wouldn't have seen the footprints that night. They probably didn't go that far. See what I'm saying? Yeah. If she got past Bradley Hill Road and dodged Monahan coming that way, yeah. she could have, you know, kept going. Um, Michelle here has an interesting point that I think we just kind of pass over. A person crashed who was likely drinking, which was just stated by Smith, yeah. that he saw the, uh, the the box of wine in the back of the car, and they didn't think it was warranted, uh, and they didn't think it warranted a thorough search. It's negligent. That's a great point. Because yeah. people, you know, and I keep falling back on, well, they didn't think anything was wrong. But if you do see that someone was drinking and they're not around the car and there's evidence of it in the car, is it negligent to not thoroughly search? And we have we have comment we have uh, the uh, the log here that says has the um, that she arrived at the cottage. H two clear of scene. Uh, Lavoie has a van has a vehicle. Any luck locating the party or has she shown at cottage and cottage, cottage hospital? So they were aware that there was somebody um, that there was somebody out there. Mm-hmm. Right. They assumed she would show up at the hospital. Why? I wonder. Yeah, right. Um, maybe that's just what happens if someone goes missing from a car, generally, a car accident, generally. Yeah, maybe someone called something. Yeah, no, because we, we would know that. What, did she just walk there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. Oh, uh, what what about Strelzen sitting in on Cecil Smith and John Monahan's interviews? How did you feel about that? Well, you know, it's probably right down to there's information here that these guys are going to talk about. There's questions that are going to be asked, and he probably just wanted to make sure that just doing his job, make sure that what the answers are, what the questions are, fit within a realm of what he thinks is necessary to be uh, disseminated to the public. Okay. I think he wanted to monitor it. Maybe he wanted more uh, screen time, but I think he wanted to monitor what information was being talked about just as part of his position. So let's, let's, play, let's play this out a little bit, okay? So at what point does Strelzen stop the interview? Like what, what is he looking for to be said for him to have stopped that interview? Maybe he's not looking for anything, but... Well, why, he was sitting there because he was waiting to stop the interview if something was said. Right. What would have been, I mean, obviously, okay, total extreme, like, you know, uh, oh, I don't even know, actually. What, right. what is the extreme? I was going to say, like, oh, like a confession to Maura Murray, and why would Strelzen stop that? Um, or if he says, I know who, you know, for example, Jeff Williams really did it, why would he stop that? It, it, it could be that maybe, maybe the things that Moynihan and Smith would say might inadvertently be a fact or lead to um, something that they have as an open investigation in this case, and they don't realize it. Right. So they might start talking about something, and he might say, you want to wrap that up because that I, that, that might be tipping somebody else off. If I this just goes think, to a criminal right. court case, I might not be able to use something? Exactly. I don't think he was looking for something specific. Yeah. I think he was listening. I think mm-hmm. he just needed to listen. Maybe he was even listening just because he wanted to hear what they were saying. Right. Maybe there was going to be some new information. Um, I actually think, now that I'm talking about it, I actually think that I, I, I love the fact that he was there. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, it doesn't look as shady now after talking about it. If he's actually doing his job, then he wants to know what these guys are going to say. That's it. Yeah, I mean, it's better hearing about what is going to come out in a documentary, um, hearing about it when it's filmed, so you know what was said. But beyond uh, that, other than just being surprised tonight, you right? Know, but beyond that, I think, I think he might have, if he had the the best, um, the if he had the best intentions for the case and the investigation, he's not going to just not listen to what the state police and the first arriving officer was going to is going to say, no matter if it's to us or to Maggie and Art. Mm-hmm. I mean, he his position in in the state. I mean, he's, he needs to be there. Yeah. What about when he said that one of the reasons they don't give a lot of information out is because we want to hold some stuff back because if the killer knows that we want to 
know that only the killer would have been able to know that. They hold stuff back from the press for that reason, is what he said. It sounds almost like rom- almost like investigator, like detective romantic. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. See, I feel like it hardly ever happens, right? What are the chances that that really happens? Prob- who knows? Probably more often than than we know. Yeah, you're probably I mean, right. You know, we don't work in that yeah. that that realm that, like they do all the time. Yeah, um, it seems far. It seems like it would happen in a movie to me. Right, but it it doesn't mean that it wouldn't but happen. But we we haven't been to court. Like they go to court as their job, and they probably see so many situations where someone said something they shouldn't have, and all of a sudden every every piece of evidence is out the window now. Yeah, because that was not gathered properly or that, you know, someone spoke too loosely. Um, and what do we think about Smith volunteering the information about Butch? Yeah, that was pretty interesting. I think because he knows the theory. I mean, that's, that's what I'll go with. I think it sounds like feels like natural. Like a lot of people would do that. Like if you know what you're going to get asked, like he probably jumped the gun answering it, I think a couple of times. Um, but I, you know, I agree. It's a little, it's a little weird. It was kind of blurted out. Like, I think, I think that's a natural way to go. Like if you think, Oh, you know, Cecil Smith knows more about where more is or Butch knew more or something like that. It's like, well, who knew each other? Did Williams know Smith? Did, uh, Atwood, no Williams, you know what I mean? And are we opening up a whole new can of worms that we shouldn't be? Maybe, he, you know, maybe Smith is just like wound tight because of the interview. And, Pro- I mean, and, probably. He's, and he's probably sitting there thinking, I need to say something right now. I need to say that I didn't, I don't know him. I, I didn't know him. And then he probably said it and thought, oh shit. <laughs> like, what, what was I thinking? Why did I just say that? Um, it could just be nerves. Yeah. And maybe we're just starting a whole new rag in the tailpipe, red herring. Yeah. Uh, Sonia says, "What did it feel like to finally see and hear from Cecil Smith?" What a great, what a great question! Because I, I don't, I still don't know if it's Cecil or Cecil. Um, <laughs> it seemed pretty clear that it was Cecil. He Lance. looks more like a Cecil. <laughs> um, it was. It was. He's not what I thought he would look like. I mean, I don't even know what I pictured. Yeah, I didn't really picture anything, but. Yeah, it was pretty cool. It, it was, I agree, he wasn't what you pictured. Who knows what anyone would picture, but it was pretty. It was pretty cool to see him and finally hear some answers from Cecil. Right, because he's been this like folklore character. Right, the first person at the scene. You know, when we start, first started looking into this, and even when uh, Texas Crew and Oxygen started looking into this, it's really tough to find information on him. Right. And and to finally see him, he was kind of mythological. <laughs> he is a little bit, yeah. Chloe says, based on the photos of the accident scene two days later, if uh, I think if Mora went into the woods, her sneakers and jeans would have been soaked through at least at the ankles based on the level of snow. But I want to say that a few people in here, uh, Lauren and someone else, was saying that I am about 115 pounds, and I wonder if I could have walked on the frozen snow without it bro- breaking through. No. But I will say, like, the, there is times during the winter when even I can walk on snow without it breaking through. Right. But you're talking about, like, that's that's over the course of several storms. and Usually. I, yeah. I would say so, yeah. And and you only walk on that if you're, like, ginger about it. Yep. Yeah. There would have to be something. If, if she's I'm a little actually, heavier than Mora, though. Well, you're, like, 120. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Peter Milner. What's up, Clint? He says, what role did you guys think a threat of a lawsuit for negligence has in the way police have acted publicly about the case? I have to read that again. What role do you think a threat of a lawsuit of negligence has in the way police, like threatening a lawsuit uh, against the police for negligence? Yes. I think that's very, very, very slim. Okay. Why? Because the car... Because the car was found. Uh, I, I guess the question is why, or do you think that the threat of that would have any effect on the way the police have acted about this case? I don't. I probably think that they don't think about that. I think. Yeah. That, I think that they they deal with their investigations. 
Yeah. I think a threat of a lawsuit, they they probably if it ever comes through, they probably think, okay, we'll get our lawyers on this or and we'll we'll keep working on a case. Maybe I hold too much credit like too much faith in in police officers, but I know more really good police officers than I do bad police officers. Right, and a good and a good call by Fred there um when he said, you know, there are uh, yeah. There are good there. He said exactly that. There are good police officers and there are bad police officers. They shouldn't be held on some, you know, holy regard. He said something like that. Um, and it's a good point. You know, you, you see that you see that everywhere in this right. country. You, right. Exactly. You're you're not part of a police force. This is a great point, actually, from Clint or Peter. You you're in your that law enforcement industry and i feel weird saying industry but that like the law enforcement uh industry must deal with that on a daily basis they absolutely deal with it on a daily basis so so a threat of that for negligence probably doesn't phase them that much Mm -hmm. nancy says if it's true what monahan is saying why is he now a chief in franconia if he is only the only one who can patrol east why would he go west it, and it wasn't like he was called to the scene. Yeah, it, he. It, there was a. It was a casual. It was a casual assistance. Right, and I thought that was interesting that it was cleared up the, why Monahan's superiors at the time didn't know that Monahan was on the scene, and I forget what it was called exactly. It's like a. It was like a it was, general. Uh, it was like a general assistant. I think my kid screamed right at the exact moment that that. Uh, those well, words. she was shocked. <laughs> she was shocked by what he said. Um, we so, all were. Yeah, we all were. But um, but that's interesting to know that that that's why. So there wasn't a formal report that Monahan would have ever filled out because he kind of considered it barely helping. I guess. I agree. Yeah. I mean, they say it's a general assistance report. Yeah. Did Monahan ever say why he signed off at a hotel from Wanda? Um, I don't know. I don't know uh, what to say about that one. You, Lance? I mean, to say anything would be just speculating, so I, yeah. I don't know. Well, what's the question? Did he ever say why he signed off at a hotel? Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. He never said why. John Smith said it best about Williams. Where is Maura Murray? Yeah. Uh, quite quite a dramatic Old. moment um, <laughs> heading out to commercial. Um, but uh, maybe this show will talk to Williams. I'm not really sure. Do you have anything else, Lance? No, other than other than we really need to figure out what um, what numbers are assigned to the vehicles. Yeah. Is H what's H two? What is H two? Because H two is what, according to the dispatch, H two is what Smith was driving. So what is H two? 